The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the athlete. Ibtihaj Muhammad is a warrior. You see it when she's fencing. When she wins a major point, she turns toward the spectators, punches her fist down, opens her chest, and fills the room. That roar is the sound of Ibtihaj's will to win in the face of any challenge. It took her all the way to the Olympics in 2016. Ladies and gentlemen, the victory ceremony for the women's Sabre team competition. Ibtihaj and her teammates representing the USA line up behind the podium. The four women stand shoulder to shoulder. Medaille de bronze, the United States of America. The bronze medal goes to Team USA. They step up onto the podium in unison and raise their arms in the air. They're beaming. I remember standing on that podium and just thinking about all those difficult moments. That's all I thought about. Ibtihaj had made history as the first American to compete in the Olympics wearing hijab. But this experience was bittersweet. I was thinking about how hard that journey was. So it was, it was just disbelief. And I almost felt like I was dreaming. Like I can watch videos of, of the medal ceremony and you can see it. it's written all over my face. I'm like, oh my God, you know, like I'm just so in shock that this is happening. This was one of her proudest moments. Yet she couldn't stop thinking about how hard it had been to get there, to be accepted in this sport, to be judged on her strength and ability rather than her appearance. Ibtihaj knows what it takes to win on the fencing strip. Now she's using that same tenacity to defy stereotypes. This is The Phenom Effect, a podcast from Nike, where athletes' stories progress beyond the field of play. When Ibtihaj was five years old, the Mohammed family moved from Newark, New Jersey, to a nearby suburb called Maplewood. This was the early 90s, and they were practically the only African-American Muslim family living there at the time. All five of the Mohammed kids played sports. To Ibtihaj's mom, Denise, sports were an icebreaker. First of all, when you're new to a community and you're different, sports is a wonderful introduction and introduces people to people who don't necessarily look like them. Ibtihaj loved sports. She loved getting to know her strength. But when she started track and field, it wasn't quite the icebreaker her mom had in mind. As a young Muslim kid who didn't wear shorts, who didn't wear tank tops, I was always different from everyone else. And I, I really struggled with that. I didn't like being stared at, didn't like attention. Ibtihaj modified her athletic uniform to meet Islamic guidelines for modesty. In elementary school, she wore her favorite purple paisley leggings underneath her track shorts. It was around this time Ibtihaj began to wear hijab to school a few days a week. I remember uh, this one kid. He used to always say that I looked like I had a tablecloth on my head. It was so mean-spirited, and that type of banter was used more so to make people laugh. Being used as a source of entertainment for others is really hurtful. 
When Etihad was on the track, she felt like all people saw was her religion instead of her. All she wanted to do was blend in. Then she discovered a solution, a sport where she could both blend in and show her force. Prior to high school, we'd always tell the story about how we were driving through town. Driving past the local high school. And saw the fencing team. From the road into the school cafeteria. I didn't see anything but their hands. I didn't even see their faces. Long sleeves, long pants. Said, I'm not sure what they're doing over there, but maybe we should try it. Ibtihaj got home and researched what she'd seen. Fencing. And she saw that all the top colleges had fencing teams. At 12 years old, she was already fixated on getting into a top school. So she decided that fencing would be her path to get there. A year later, when she entered high school, she marched into that cafeteria at Columbia High for her first team practice. When Ibti Hodge put on the mesh fencing mask, it covered her hijab. And she looked just like everyone else. Fencing was the first time as a kid uh, that my uniform was the same as everyone else's. I didn't have to make modifications to the uniform. I wasn't, you know, a Muslim kid on a team with no other Muslims. I was just, you know, this person who wore this fencing mask and no one knew what was underneath it. It was really just about how, how good can you be? What can you bring to the table as an athlete? And I, I loved that from the very beginning. There are three types of fencing swords. Foil, saber, and epee. Each weapon also has its own rules and style of scoring. So at first, Ibtihaj chose to fence epee. It's very, like, docile, super calm. You're, like, you're just kind of waiting for an opening. The epee's tentative style, that cautiousness, didn't match Ibtihaj. In practice, she sometimes roared when she scored a point. It just spilled out of her naturally. So the coach noticed, and he stops everybody. He's like, who was that? Uh, He was just, like, so surprised. That kind of roar is common with advanced fencers, and it tends to come from the mouths of saber fencers. Athletes who are known for their confidence and aggressive nature, who lunge forward at the jump without hesitation. When her coach heard her roar, he moved her to the saber squad, and within a month, she'd made varsity. He saw something in me that I hadn't even seen in myself yet, and it was really this like inner fierceness that really translated well to Sabre. Finally, she fit in. But when the team traveled to other high schools to compete, the idea that she could blend in kind of broke down. I was always like the only black kid there. I was, or most times, and I was always the only kid who wore hijab. Denise says there's no way Ibti Hodge could have gone unnoticed. Because you walk into a room of fencing, everything's white. The gear is white. The people are white. The uniform is white. The walls are white. And when they take off that mask and you see someone of color, you see them. You can't help but see them. Now you take off the mask, you see a woman of color, and she has on her black hijab. She stands out. Ibti Hodge was singled out for wearing hijab. She had to submit paperwork to wear it in competition. And some parents used this to challenge her eligibility. This was something that would happen like a few times a year when I was in high school. And it was always frustrating having parents of other athletes stop the tournament to ask if 
if my hijab in some way would affect their kid. You know what I mean? Just to make sure their kid is safe fencing with me. And I think that this was not only a way to acknowledge you being different and to be mean, but also to try to break you mentally before the competition. As a parent, it tugs you at your heartstring because your kid, your kid hurts. They agonize. They hurt. And when they're hurting, regardless of what it is, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking I wouldn't be upset if she quits because you don't like the pain and the agony. Ibtihaj learned to block out these moments and then fight it out on the fencing strip. She kept winning this way. In 11th grade, she qualified for the Junior Olympics. She got knocked out pretty early, but she wanted to stay, watch, and learn from her competitors. As they watched, Denise noticed something from the sidelines, across the arena, in that sea of white. We could see a group of kids at the other end of the arena, and they were cheering each other on, and when they took off those masks, they were brown. I didn't know who they were, but we could see them. And they had these gold and black warm-ups. So you could see them. You know, they stood out. And I asked, and they said, oh, that's the Peter Westbrook Foundation. On any given Saturday morning, you can find Peter Westbrook, a five-time Olympian, on the second floor of a nondescript building in Midtown Manhattan. Hey, baby, hey. I love you guys. I love you. Or do you? I do, I do love you guys. You crazy? I love you like crazy. This is his fencing school. His vision was to create a more inclusive space for fencers of color. Because when Peter fenced in the 70s, he had to fight to belong as a black athlete in what was mostly a white sport. Ipti Hodge came to the Peter Westbrook Foundation right after the Junior Olympics. She was 16. Ipti first came here. Uh, I saw... My God, so driven, will to win. She has a will where, you know, if some people want to win, her will is beyond that. Like, it's the last day on earth. If you don't win this, you don't have any food. If you lose this bout, you will not be able to be a human being. This is the kind of intensity Ibti Hodge applied toward everything she did. A typical day at the time for Ipti Hodge went something like this. She would go to school. After classes, she would practice with her fencing team at Columbia High School. Then she would head to the train station, eat dinner on the train to the Peter Westbrook Foundation, practice again with her coaches there, do her homework on the train back to New Jersey, go to bed, and then repeat it all the next day. All with the goal of getting into that top college. And it paid off. She was recruited to fence at Duke, and her stellar grades got her a scholarship. At this stage in the game, fencing was a means to an end, and she had reached that end. Ipti Hodge graduated from college in 2007, at the start of the recession. She applied for paralegal jobs almost every day, but she wasn't getting anywhere. I was looking for a job with Muhammad at the top of my resume. And in having a really hard time getting interviews, I had this moment in my life that I'm not super proud of, but I took my last name from my resume and I started going with my middle name. She felt she was being discriminated against because of her last name. So for a little while, she went by Ibti Hodge Inas. And I got way more interviews, um, but I didn't really think this whole thing through because when I got to the interview, I had hijab. 
Around this time, Iptihaj fell into a deep depression, spent her days on the couch watching TV. During painful times in the past, fencing had been her therapy. Fencing had fueled her ambition. So she went back to the Peter Westbrook Foundation. Going back to something that she was good at felt great. Aki Spencer Eel saw her fence there, and he was blown away. I saw this very intense fencer wearing a hijab who was beating everybody. <laughs> she was very successful. Aki had fenced in the Olympics, and he recognized her raw talent. And I remember the first day we started working together, he said, you could be one of the best fencers in the world. And I remember thinking like, well, he's crazy for sure, but uh, he believes in me. Not only that, he knew how to coach her to reach her full potential. He taught her how to read her opponent's moves, to plan her next point. I didn't know that there was this whole other world of fencing tactically, really. Fencing is more like chess and you're building from every point. You're using that particular action to build on your next action. And once I learned that really large piece of the fencing puzzle, it kind of changed the trajectory of my career. Under Aki's coaching, Iptihaj traveled to tournaments around the world to improve her ranking. On their trips, Aki says he saw her grapple with bias in some competitions. We were at one competition, and um, there were clearly touches that were hers that were not given to her. And because she's such a fierce competitor, she was able to fence her way out of it. But there were times when she didn't, and she lost about. Scoring in saber fencing is designed to be objective. The uniform is threaded with conductive metal, which is wired to a set of lights. So when a fencer scores a touch on their opponent, the winner's light blinks on. But it happens lightning fast. Often both sides light up, and then a judge has to decide who gets the point. So scoring can end up feeling subjective. Aki was witness to this. She lives in this world that's against Muslims. I really believe that the fight started there. No one will really understand that because they don't know what it's like to fence under those conditions to, you know, be the person that, you know, everybody wants to lose. You know what I mean? I've witnessed that being her coach and traveling with her and being on the sidelines. I witnessed those things happen. And that's just on the strip. I witnessed the random searches in the airport. You know, I witnessed, you know, people saying things as we were walking together. I, I you know, so I, I can only imagine what it's like when she's alone. And she's by herself, you know, and that's where the fight came from. For decades, fencers of color have had to deal with discrimination. Peter Westbrook, for example, he fenced in the 1984 Olympics before light sensors. Back then, judges raised their hand for the winner of a point. I'm fencing Europeans with European judges with no lights. You got to raise your hand. You know how hard that is for get them to even want to raise their hand? I cut his head off. His head is rolling down the ground, and you don't raise your hand? No, no, I'm not sure if that's his head. What is a head, isn't it? After her tough bouts, Ibtihaj didn't want to dwell on what she couldn't control. She didn't talk about it. Instead, she and Aki shifted their tactic. She would learn to score points that were so clearly hers that the judges had no choice but to give them to her. It was a turning point in her career. Just one year after Ibtihaj started training with Aki, she made the U.S. national team. 
and the world noticed. Ipti Hodge's first world championship after making the national team was in Paris at the Grand Palais. It was just breathtaking, even just the venue. And seeing, you know, and amongst these thousands of, of spectators, there being, you know, women and kids in hijab that were there, asking for your autograph or asking for your picture simply because they hadn't seen a woman from the United States compete in fencing in hijab before. These women and girls were there to see Ipti Hodge fence. Then she realized her hijab, the piece of fabric that had been an obstacle in her athletic climb, had become a symbol of hope and solidarity. She began to think more deeply about who and what she was fighting for. The warm reception she'd found at the Grand Palais, however, was very different from what she says she received from the national team. I was excluded intentionally a lot, like not being told about team dinners or not being told about team practices, which are way more pertinent than a team dinner. Fencing at a professional level can be lonely. At tournaments, fencers constantly compete against their own teammates. To improve your ranking, you need to win bouts. Only the four highest-ranked fencers make the Olympic team. It's cutthroat. Still, for Ipti Hodge, it went deeper than that. I couldn't explain my sadness. I didn't know why I was feeling this way. I didn't know, you know, why some days I didn't want to get out of bed. And um, I remember talking to my mom about it. And my mom, you know, being like, you need to pray more. And I'm like, mm, I don't think this is about prayer. Like, these are like actual uh, moments of, of harassment that I'm experiencing. And how do I work through them? She worked through the pain of being excluded the way she always has, by pouring it into her fight. In February 2016, after meddling at a major competition, that will to win earned Ipti Hodge a spot on the Olympic Sabre team. Ipti Hodge Muhammad would be the first American to compete in hijab in the Olympic Games. She was flooded with phone calls and media requests. Everyone wanted to talk about her hijab. Because I qualified in the midst of the presidential election, when any conversations around the Muslim community were always negative, the narrative had become dark and dreary, and to me wasn't reflective of any of the Muslims that I knew. Ipti Hajj recognized the opportunity before her. The next time she would step on the strip, it would be at the Olympics, and the fight wouldn't just be for her anymore. At the Games in Rio, Ipti Hodge and her teammates put their differences aside to win a bronze medal. Medalha de bronze, Estados Unidos da América. And standing on that podium, thinking about the difficult moments, she decided winning a medal was no longer the pinnacle, because now she had a platform. As an athlete who has a platform, it's like, to me, there's only one choice, and the choice is to use it. We're now in a time and place where people feel emboldened, like they can act on, you know, these feelings of hate and discrimination without any repercussion. And that's scary. I have to take control of this narrative, not for myself, but all the young kids out there who I feel like are directly affected by the bigoted statements that are made.
On a misty Saturday morning this past October, more than 100 kids fill the Peter Westbrook Foundation School. Robin Desai is one of the parents watching from the back of the room. A friend recommended the foundation for her daughter, Mala. Just like, why don't you just put her in fencing? And I was like, who does that? He was like, you haven't been watching the Olympics? And I was like, no. So then I put the Olympics on. I was like, oh my gosh, she's fantastic. Talking about Ibtihaj, Robin tears up. You know what it is? When you see this, this black woman, black Muslim woman, just like, I know what I want to do, and I'm going to get there, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to prove that I can do it. I was like, I can't believe I was missing on this. Here at her home fencing club, you can feel the impact Ibti Hodge has had. And you feel it in the outside world, too. She's spoken up publicly about the Muslim travel ban, published a book about her journey, and traveled the world for the U.S. State Department, encouraging young athletes to pursue their dreams. I know that some athletes get stuck in sport and don't know what happens next, but for me, I've always wanted to transcend sport in a way that reaches people. It's like, what else can I do? How else can I, you know, leave this mark on the world that helps our kids see themselves in non-traditional spaces? She's already left her mark. But for this tireless fighter, there are more victories ahead. Next week on The Phenom Effect, four-time WNBA champion Maya Moore. I was basically like a pro in high school. Just the amount of stuff I was doing with the tournaments and the media and just like magazines and national tournaments and rankings and interviews. Basketball player Maya Moore on how she discovered her greatness and then decided to use it to help people off the court. The Phenom Effect is a production of Nike. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe and let us know what you think by leaving a review. If you like Ipti Hodge's story, keep up with her on Instagram. She's at Ipti Hodge Muhammad. This episode was produced by Emily Foreman with help from producers Megan Kunane, Bradley Campbell, James Green, and Rachel Ward. Research by Andrew Helms and editing help by Renita Jablonski. Abby Ruzika is our senior producer. Andrea B. Scott is our editor. Mix and sound design by Zach Schmidt with additional mixing by Keegan Zemma and Ian Scott. Special thanks to Josh Millman. Our theme music is by Claus. Executive creative direction by Amber Rushton. Thanks for listening.